0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Reality 2.0. I'm Catherine Druckmann, and I am with Doc Searles today. And we have two special guests. One is Bastian Purer and the other is Namek Mudoroglu. And they are here representing a project called Human ID. You can look that up. It's human-id.org. They're going to tell you about it in a little bit. Um, but it's all around identity and privacy and accountability and I think they, they have a really interesting story to tell. Um, but before we get started, I wanted to thank everyone for supporting us on Patreon and coffee and various other means. Thank you to everyone who reaches out to us by email. Uh, if I haven't responded yet, I promise to do that as soon as possible. Um, and I wanted to remind everyone to check out our website at reality2cast.com, that's the number two, uh, we have various supplementary information there that's available. You can sign up for our newsletter and do a lot of other things. So we hope to see you there. Oh, you can, you can buy a t-shirt and stuff too, if you want. I mean, it's kind of mm-hmm. cool. <laughs> no pressure. Um, but yeah, so so with that, uh, you know, I, we can get started. Um, I'll hand it over to Namek and Bastian so they can tell us a little bit more about their project and what inspired it as well as some of their fairly lofty goals for it i think uh, you might find it a little bit inspiring so yeah so what can y'all tell us about about your project and, and where it came from
1: yeah i mean the thanks for first of all for having us on uh, the podcast and for oh, the nice for introductions. Us. and um so I started um, Human ID around three years ago, and the, the the inspiration was sort of sad. I was back then living in Indonesia, which is the third biggest democracy in the world, and they were running uh, presidential elections uh, at the time. And I was getting involved with one of the local political parties to help uh, to help, especially in marketing, which is my background, digital marketing. And that made me realize, working with this party made me realize to what extent really every single party in the country, and now I know basically all over the world, was working with huge amounts of, of fake accounts and bot networks and automated. So like accounts that look like real human beings but that are automated or semi-automated and are used to spread certain messages, upload them on Twitter, on Facebook, comment, retweet, uh, follow and so on. And these were used to spread messages of specific parties, but very often, and those were also abused to spread fake news or, or just rumors uh, and present them as facts. And the results in Indonesia specifically were very similar to what we've seen in other countries, including the US. You had um, like lots of damaging information go around, lots of polarization, racist rumors um, amplified. And you had elections where no party uh, accepted the result afterwards, when there's huge uh, riots afterwards, um, contesting the elections. And until today, you have a lot of uh, open wounds in the society. And I mean, this will ring a lot of uh, bells to what happened in America two years later. Of course, there's some differences. Um, But it just made me realize that there is a major problem. That's not one political candidate or one or one, one country but that is really how the internet runs. So me and my back then, uh, good friends, Sidik uh, and, and others, uh, re- um worked on a way that we basically want to make the, the, the internet work like a democracy works in a way where everyone has just one voice, but that voice is really protected. Just like with elections, everyone gets one vote, but that vote is anonymous. And that is sort of our big idea. And that's brought us to our product, which maybe is a good chance to let Nami come in.
2: Yeah, so as Bastian mentioned, uh, he went back to HBS, MedSherry, our other, other co-founder. Uh, a bit later, I kind of joined on. And HumanID, in its current iteration, is a proof of humanity. It's currently, what we have is an SSO. Uh, allows you to basically log in to whoever uses Human ID with full anonymity, while guaranteeing to the companies that they are real users. So, this kind of tackles the pressing issue that Basham saw in Indonesia, which was fake accounts, fake people who swarmed the internet, created sentiment, and um, part of the CIB issue, right? Coordinated inauthentic behavior. Uh, it's a lot of the same reasons I joined Human ID, uh, growing up in Azerbaijan, as well as having very close proximity to Russia as well as Turkey. There's a lot of these issues where fake accounts propagate and push a certain narrative, which doesn't necessarily reflect what everybody believes. We are live with thousands of users, live through several apps, and we have multiple integrations coming on the way. Yeah, uh, we're backed by Harvard and Mozilla. We're on a mission to fix the internet, to create a better internet, and they're actively looking for partners, uh, people who believe in the same mission, and things of that sort.
0: I think There's a quick um, synopsis. Oh yeah, no, that's great. I, you know, so, so I think you know, you you've really entered a, an interesting spot here in the, in the privacy debate and in the misinformation slash disinformation debate. You know, and that is how do you how do you protect. Users' privacy, but also have, have some accountability. And I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with from an ethical perspective and a technical perspective. So that's, you know, one of the reasons I was really excited to invite you guys on. You know, I'd like y'all to sort of explore that a little bit more, both, both from a technical angle, like how are you you going about this? But but really I think just as, as interesting as the technical angle is the ethical angle, you know, which I think we'd like to talk about as well. I think Doc, maybe you had a question in there and wanted to make sure I don't talk over it.
3: I, I, I wonder if you could just tell us um, uh, mechanically how it works. I mean uh, so and if you could just start from the from the user side, I know you have a business on the enterprise side, but on the on the on the individual side, why does somebody want one of these, want a human ID and what a good it does for them, but also how mechanically you know how do you how do you get one, how do you use it? You know what is the s what's the difference between the the now old-fashioned but persistent login and password system which i think you're trying to get past how's that work
1: so from a technical from a user perspective we're trying to make this as as uh, convenient as fast as a single sign-on or as specifically it's very similar to an sms sign-on so the the Integration is just like a Facebook SDK, uh, available in all different languages. So once it's integrated on a website, which it can be as the exclusive login method or as one of several login methods, even in parallel to a Facebook login, um, it basically shows users a button, login anonymously with human ID. And then when the user uh, clicks on the button, they come into a screen where they uh, have uh, asked for their phone number, but also immediately, told that we are first of all a nonprofit, and that we immediately delete this phone number once it's verified we then verify the phone number just like an sms login would verify a phone number and then once that is happening in that moment we're encrypting that phone number uh, hashing it with uh, in a way that is specific to this specific service uh, and thereby creating an id that is unique to both this phone number and this service um, and then deleting the phone number from our servers and have never communicated it to the service the user is logging into, and then we're redirecting the user to, this, to, to the page they're logging into, and um, communicating only this uh, ID this, that is derived from a hash to the website.
3: That is and, uh, uh,
1: the general experience.
3: And the way you assure that the um, to the website that they're dealing with a human being is that only a human only only a human would have a phone, is that right?
1: So in the current iteration, that is basically the the base premise. There's some other things we're doing, um, and we, and, and also ideas we have for the future in terms of like working with companies to look at how networks are structured, um, and, uh, seeing if there's a, as a way to identify separate IDs, um, by like zero knowledge proofs, uh, things like this are possible for the future, but in our current iteration, that's the base premise. Um, but like. The, the importance is like it needs a unique permanent phone number that you continue to have access in the future as well um, which basically creates a certain amount of cost of friction that um, will increase the cost of running many many accounts so,
3: so as yeah. a as a person so I, I would have and, and so instead of login with Facebook I basically got login with human ID right that that's roughly how it works so Then I go to the next website. Um, It wants me to create a login and a password. I would use my human ID, but would I have to make up a unique password? Was that required all over again?
1: It it doesn't work with password. We don't require a password. We're basically like an, uh, an OTP login from the user experience side. So you're getting an SMS to your phone with a with an identifier. That's of course like technically that's a password. Um and mm-hmm. in the current iteration you would have to go through that process again. We do have an, an architecture laid out where that could potentially be avoided. But that's from a privacy, that's really, really complex because you want to log in into into website B without letting website A know uh, who the same user is. So we don't have them in the current iteration yet. So you would have to request a new password
3: and the advantage Uh, for the site or the service it could be a service is not necessarily a site i suppose is that because they don't know who you are um but they know that you're human they can still in a first party way deal with you and then in other words they they gather information about you and your in the course of your dealing with the site you know they'll they'll remember who you are and, and without knowing who your name is but they at least know that's a A real identity a human identity but it would appeal to especially I suppose in Europe where the GDPR is actually finally being enforced that uh, you're you're you don't you're sort of immunized from all the third-party stuff I guess right that's the that's it but you can still you can still you can still do some of what Google wants to do with the cohorts thing like well this these 10 users seem to be interested in this kind of thing and we could give many ad for that kind of thing. Is that sort of where it goes? So,
2: yeah, it's an interesting question. Uh, What we're really focusing on is PII, uh, personally identifiable information. Yeah. We're not necessarily against data collection as long as it's large scale, aggregated, and not necessarily linked to an individual user. So in a lot of ways, we're, we support, um, you know, data being used by hospitals to track X, Y, and Z. Uh, a lot of our greatest use cases are in places like mental health, as long as it's not connected to the individual user. We see a lot of success in whistleblowing apps, for example, as in social networks, as our the adopters. And we really do see uh, like a offer of, you know, you values for services as well as clients. I'm sure you've seen the Cisco, uh, Cisco report from like last year, where we focused on seeing how many of my generation are privacy actives. You want to see how your data is being used. You want to be aware of what's going on. And a lot of people are under the assumption that a lot of services think that they make money off the PII. That's not the case. So, what we're really focusing on is creating a win-win situation where users believe that they know that they're safe, while companies know that they have real
1: users. Yeah, what we we see in our talks with uh, companies is definitely what what Namik touched on, that most companies actually don't make money off the PII. They don't make money off the email address, some some send newsletters, but um, most companies Need the additional data, and we believe, and have some data supporting that, that users are actually more willing to share information um, if they know it can be matched back to their PII, to their email address or their their name. Um, So that, for example, a health app or a mental health app, like it's intuitive, or a whistleblowing app, it's intuitive that people would be more willing to share if they feel protected and safe than if they are. Uh, rightfully always have to be scared that the next day their data is associated with their email on the web no company can make these promises that that won't happen um and dark as you said like that affects obviously the small startups definitely are concerned about gdpr and ccpa and with us they don't really have to worry about that as much um, or even not at all depending on their setup um, and can just go about their business first and, and, and prove their case first um, and to touch on uh, so whistleblowing is the, um, for the privacy reasons so that's sort of our two camps of customers we have the whistleblowing apps and anything where people really really care about their privacy and it would be a catastrophe if data leaks anything that uh, sensitive things in authoritarian countries um, but also vulnerable groups in in the us and anywhere are affected by that and then the second group is sort of the the beginning of human ideas or so social networks that really care about a good community that are, are struggling with content moderation, because it's always the same people coming back and spreading these these poisonous things, um, either because they were banned and just coming back, if it's individuals, or because it's a widespread coordinated professional campaign, like we see in misinformation campaigns all across the world. Um, that's our two groups of, of use cases so far.
0: So. You mentioned earlier, um, you know, the the process of signing up with a phone number and whatnot, and then that you you don't really store it; it's very it's transient data, so to speak. But you also said that it needs to be something that you have access to on an ongoing basis. And I'm wondering, technically, how how does that work? So, what do you store? What and identifying information of any kind do you store, and how you know how do you reauthenticate?
1: Yeah. That, thanks. Thanks for asking that. Uh, so I, w- I wasn't clear. Then we as a company do not have ongoing access to the phone number. You as the okay. user, in order to recreate your login ID, that is a ha- is derived mm, from a hash, okay. you need to have access to your phone number, which makes it much harder to build these large scale campaigns or like buy a number of the mm-hmm. internet like there's These like random sites where you can have like a burner phone number that actually doesn't really work. Uh, we-, we tested every single one that we could find. Um, okay. So what we, to answer your question from a technical perspective, what we store on a user level is really just that, um, that ID for, um, per, per client. So like a random ID generated that's on a user per client level. And the only information we have on a user level is their country code. Uh, and the reason for that is because we see bot networks do come generally from a very small group of countries um and we want to give our clients the opportunity to at least have some transparency around that if they suddenly like if they're a US focused business and they suddenly see an influx of of accounts from a certain country then they might uh, want to look at that twice so it gives an additional layer of security um without in uh, in any way infringing on on the personal privacy that's the only thing we start at all
0: so Maybe, you know, going back to sort of ethical considerations, I, I wonder um, what sort of use cases, you know, you, you talked about two major camps, and I wondered if there's any use cases that you hoped to see or expect to see that maybe you haven't yet.
2: I'd say what passion thinking, polling, you know, him being in Indonesia, me being in Azerbaijan, there is a very, very valuable opportunity to tell what people are thinking without being worried about being personally targeted. So without a doubt, polling is number one. You can even look at places like the US. Polling is off every time. And we partly know why, and we aren't surprised. It could be super fascinating to see what will happen in emerging nations. We've had conversations about polling in South Africa. There are organizations, NGOs that do internal polling they're also way off. And part of that is because they don't have that infrastructure for both privacy, as well as, you know, making sure this person is who they say they are, i.e. a human being. The tough part is we're not going into these businesses. We understand we're just one part of the solution. We're not it. We're actively looking for that part, that person who wants to do polling in South Africa. Or a polling organization in the U.S. that wants to give this a shot. We're focusing on our niche
1: because we know we're just one part of the solution.
0: Interesting. I, I wonder. Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
1: I feel like like what NAMIC means is we don't build the polling side. We're right. just a tool for them to fix their business.
0: Mm-hmm. But you hope. But it's something that you hope to see more of. I, I gather. So. I have a question that's more about, I guess, messaging around around human ID, and that is, so you you can have a conversation with technical people, right? And you can you can lay out, you know, what you collect and what you don't collect, and and, and you can you know share all of that information, and um, a certain. Percentage of the population will accept and say, oh, great. This is a great solution. I feel very comfortable using it. But another rather large segment, I might imagine, might not be so trusting. right? They may not have the technical knowledge to really understand why this may be a safer option or not. And I'm wondering how how you make people feel comfortable that their privacy is indeed uh, protected.
1: I mean, I would say that it's it's a combination of factors, of course. Of course, on one hand, it's the immediate, like when they see the login, and we've done tons of user testing to analyze that. People really like the word anonymous. People really value the nonprofit part. Uh, I think that's something when you think about like the Wikipedia, it just would never work if it was for profit because people wouldn't, would never trust it to that extent. And so that's like an immediate, the immediate reaction. And then the, of course, the other part is just like, uh, staying on the ball and, and getting integra- first integrations so people start uh, seeing it uh, start getting curious and then we have a marketing team trying to create uh publicity and and talk to journalists and so on so that people start really being aware of this solution and the background and that we are not profit driven that we are strong contrast to these extremely distrusted companies google apple facebook mm-hmm. that according to any survey 80 percent of americans do not trust
0: yeah, that, that's a good point. Just being an alternative. But I would think building trust would be maybe the most challenging part of launching something like this.
1: I think an advantage of being I mean, I, I, I've i started a for profit before this and run it for four years. Um, I think one of the advantages of being a nonprofit is that we have sort of don't have to chase the next fundraising six months out um, so we can actually plan three four years ahead because we know and because it's, it's open source and like we know the company will be around and will be working in some way or the other even in a few years um of course it can be different sizes It can be different like uh, how big the company has gotten but it's not just kind of like ran out of money in three months and because we're completely driven by volunteers as well like we know like right now we're running the company basically for free and we've gotten to pretty pretty good traction based on that uh so once we we get more to more traction and, and brand awareness and they can only get better
2: i'm not sure if we can look at the volunteers as indicative trust but we have had fantastic team from all of the best schools in the u.s and there's a lot of trust and knowledge that this kind of needs to happen and being an open source nonprofit with no incentives to you know do something wrong with your data, we don't even hold on to it. It, it shows
1: uh,
2: an early green
1: flag. I think we're looking at the, at Mozilla quite a bit. It's like an example organization. Like Mozilla does make their own revenue, um, and is generally self-sustaining from that, and, and and but still managed to build a nonprofit that has really high trust level that are significantly higher than than a Google that competes with them on many things. Um, I think that that would be like a great example. We would want to be in, in five to ten years.
3: So, so how are you uh, funded now? I, I I see you you have partners. You don't have customers, are, but they pay something, do they? Uh, so, is that your income source? Is That you know, a company pays to use your SDK and does some original stuff with it, or something like that. Is that how it works?
1: At scale that like we have customers but they we're trying to offer it as, as free as as cheap as possible um so we are charging on a per login basis that is also what drives most of our costs because we need to send the sms um so like it's aligned with our variable cost in terms of the team right now as i said is everyone is, is completely uh, volunteer at this point
3: do you keep track of logins through your own api or something like that or do they do the logs and share them with you how's that work
1: they, we we um, we of course see how many logins come through per client. We don't see who the people are or have any personal uh, identifiers. But since the login happens on our side, hosted by mm-hmm. us, um, we really only send over the successful login to the client um, or like the, the the random the identifier, and and therefore keep trust. And then uh, currently in the process of launching a self serve platform where the clients can then see exactly how many logins they got and then pay for their bills.
3: So the, um, so what is the typical, what would be a typical partner? You mentioned you have customers also, what would be a typical one and why do they engage you? And, uh, I'd kind of like to know what the sales cycle is like in a way. I mean, what kind of, generation like you're doing something that's so new it takes some explaining so i'm wondering if, you know what with they're coming with a motivation is it fear of gdpr is it wanting to have an accurate count is it just making sure there are humans over there there's you know i imagine there's several different pitches you can use
2: yeah it's a variety of things to answer your first question about what's going on at the moment we have free or pre active clients one social media one review site and a whistleblowing app as you can see the kind of value propositions are quite clear we have a couple thousand users who actively logged on with human id and long term it's a variety of things a massive one from the you know surface level is gdpr a startup can't afford to be fined and it'll be over so for everybody, large scale, it's preventing them from massive data breaches. When it comes to the future, right? Clients themselves, you know, users like ourselves, is the idea that privacy is an innate human right. They aren't making money off the PII. The vast majority of our users, and you know, most applications on the internet, I individual users, aren't the ones who are bringing the money. So, I mean, it depends on the business model. So, yeah, it's a variety of things. The sales funnel, we've had over 100 calls, is mostly we're focusing on these urgent use cases, which we've lumped into two groups, privacy and accountability. You know, privacy being whistleblowing apps, mental health, while accountability being, you know, social networks, as simple as that. There's so many people who are trying to disrupt the status quo. They want a healthier, safer Facebook. And we don't really have that. And we believe and they believe as well. A large part is because, you know, Bastion, how many fake accounts has Facebook purged in the past year? And how many are they willingly saying they have left?
1: So Facebook admits that they deleted 5 billion accounts last year. So that is approximately two times more than they say they have. They, they say they have users, and then studies say five 50, billion. So, five billion with a B. That's what they admit. It's not <laughs> like that's not like contested in any way. So they say that from every from every user account that was there last year, almost two thirds were deleted for being a fake account. Now, uh, one of one of Facebook's most important metrics on every quarterly report is their user growth. Now think about that discussion internally. Hey, should we be 1% stricter on that gray scale of what is fake and what is not? Or should we like, uh, how much can we delete for still looking good in the next quarterly report? It's a bubble and 50, like studies say that 50% of Facebook accounts are fake already. I've seen a lot of these myself in the bot networks I've, I have or have had access to. And most of those are still alive and, and doing well. There's websites out there where with a Shopify log uh, checkout, you can buy yourself bots at less than a dollar a piece. And those are accounts with history, with pictures and so on. So to sum this up, Facebook has a financial incentive to have a lot of users, it's their product. So they sell to advertisers. Um, So they're financially disincentivized to solve this problem uh, in a way that, like in in a real way, they're doing enough Especially when they get a lot of pressure, like with the U.S. elections, they're doing just enough to not get into real trouble. And we are getting in there with saying we don't have a financial interest. Like just like the the passport office shouldn't be shouldn't be uh, working for profit and trying to maximize the profits made from passports sold. Um, that's the same thing for the identity online. Um, if everyone has one one identity, then the, the internet is going to work like a, like a democracy should, with one voice per person.
3: So. Is is this your uh, for all you guys, um, both of you guys, I guess. Is this is this your primary work? Do you have a day job that you make money at doing something else? It's a nonprofit, so uh, you know I've got a nonprofit too, and I make no money from it, and but it takes up a lot of time. But I have, you know, comfortable enough to be able to do that. So, but you guys are pretty young, and uh, my guess is you need to produce an income, and so I'm wondering how you how you reconcile those those things
1: is so from my side um this has been my 70 hours a week job for the last three years with a little bit less when i was finishing my mba um i have had a, a, like relatively good run rate with my startup before this so i can afford to to do this for free and it has been incredibly rewarding in any other way including learning and
2: for me i'm a student so i joined <laughs> human id took a year off college. Uh, I've been supporting myself, you know, with other side projects, right? Passive income streams. But yeah, this has been my full commitment for the past year. And, you know, net, for the next couple of years of school,
1: I'll be balancing the two pretty equally. And, and on then we'll on see the what happens side. with that. And on the developer side, just like many, many open source projects, we are carried by a lot of really good developers who do this. A few hours a week, Um, and and then supported by also students who like do the the things they can do, and with with the consulting from world class uh, open source uh, developers who do this as a part time consulting, basically.
0: So I think you partially answered my next question, which was I'm curious about your sort of volunteer structure because you do appear to be a very volunteer driven organization, like many open source projects, like you mentioned, and I wondered if you could kind of walk through. The, the um contributor experience like how does somebody get involved
1: so we basically run this like a company we I run this just as I did my previous uh, startups and we post the 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 job on different uh, job sites we make it very clear but that it's like volunteer um but also that we're really focused on making sure everyone can learn and then people uh, apply so that's more for the student probably for people so that's mostly the non that's all. Like all the non-technical people are basically students, um, and they then get uh, onboarded just like with a with a startup, probably more structured and, and more professionals in many ways, and uh, getting lots of responsibility across a usually like three to six to nine months internship. Uh, on the technical side, it's a little bit more uh, like a mix between the, the students and then uh, more senior developers who are either. How often I on network? Um, A lot of them are from my previous jobs and people I've worked with, including uh, as well as classmates who did uh, or who who studied engineering at Harvard when I did my MBA and some people who have just come in. But we also like maybe to your audience, uh, we're always looking if senior developers, open source developers want to work with really, really smart, more junior people um, and guide them and help them in the project. um, We're really, really open for that
0: so i'm looking at your your github account <laughs> i'm looking over here right now um so do you have any sort of i mean do you accept pull requests from just anybody or you know how, how does that work
1: that hasn't happened a lot but we definitely okay. do um i do think it like just for the to make sure they actually have an impact and towards our bigger vision uh, a conversation about about the roadmap um and what really adds value makes sense to have first before uh, we basically have like um a weekly call where we sync on all the big projects um and then split into teams smaller teams that work on a separate project.
3: interesting so if, if there's a I, of course you've got a the way open source works you make money because of it not with it and generally you make money at something else you know Catherine and i were with linux journal for a very long time and Nobody makes money with Linux itself. They all make money because they apply Linux in some new way. So I'm wondering if, if your nonprofit uh, encourages other business, real businesses to come along and start using your, your, your uh, foundation, I guess, or your, your infrastructure and, and, and what that looks like for you. I mean, if, if, um, I, I'm sort of thinking, like, how is it that the world, I mean, it's five years from now. And the ideal thing has happened and everybody's using a human ID. How did that How did that happen? It's probably not because one nonprofit is doing all the work. It is so. because
1: one company would use, like one of our clients would grow really big. Mm-hmm. And they could grow really big because they can, like human ID can be a differentiating partner, for a differentiating factor. Like a lot of companies, I mean, the privacy uh, sector is really, really heating up. But as a for-profit, you have a hard time gaining real trust because you can't make real promises. Like if a for-profit says, we will never sell your user data, no user believes that. And they can't really because you, like, you can always change your mind as a for-profit. As a non-profit, we are basically a trust layer. We can help a, the next Facebook or um, other big use cases to grow really big. And then HumanID will just grow along to that company. That company will, be, will, be, will of course, have high interest in HumanID stays secure and, and and continues to be like working and, and developing further. Um, and that's how we would become really big. Of course, like humanity needs partners um to grow together, but we cannot something that a for profit can't do. And I mean I, I like I like the first year when I was working on this, I was at Harvard Business School. Like everyone asked me why are you why why the heck are you not for profit? Everything is about money there. Um, mm-hmm. It just wouldn't work as for-profit because nobody could reliably and, and sustainably trust us.
3: Do you, do you accept uh, a corporate donation? Like, let's say Cisco um, likes what you're doing, um, wants to donate money to it. Can you take their money or would you have to take it from individuals or foundations or... How would you look at that i'm asking in part because i've got a nonprofit and we're dealing with this right now i mean so we're not allowed to take our bylaws say no corporate money but there are others that can you know mozilla can do it for example
1: i think we would have we, our bylaws do not say this right now but we would probably have It's depending on which company it is
3: yeah we would have this
1: discussion if it's google or facebook we wouldn't take it because they mm-hmm. basically compared they're the problem in the space um i think cisco it's Pretty neutral, I think we actually uh, try to have a conversation with them would need, we'll need to check on that, but um, generally we're pragmatic mm-hmm. and we know um, who, who like, we know who the problem is in the space and who's not
2: I also think it's self selecting right uh Google and Facebook aren't going to be giving us money <laughs> it's just not in their incentives
3: yeah uh I've wondered about Google sometimes, though, because most of their money, like somewhere I've heard 60 to 80 percent is still plain old search advertising. You know, you you know, you search for, um, you know, uh, you search for an island and you get cruise ads, you know, or something like that. And uh, you don't really need much personalization for that. And so I've always thought that they could kind of live without it, uh, you know, um, you know, but they're still very committed to it and they're. A big part of the, the advertising ecosystem, I guess, because they're busy placing a lot of the ads. i have got a lot of the plumbing, behind the advertising that the world sees. I'm um, I'm I'm wondering. I want to go back to the the user experience uh, again, and I think I understood what you were saying about it. But I'm wondering, would once you're successful and and widespread, do people have an understanding? Oh, I've got a human ID here, is and I'm using that, or or is it, or is the experience such that uh, if they're using a human ID, they're not really that aware of it? Don't need to be aware of it.
1: So they they would not be aware of it. And most mm-hmm. companies would still give the user the chance to create a username.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, okay. To associate with with your account, um, like if you're a social network, of course you're gonna have a username, right? It's yeah. just that, that is not your email address. That's not like you can decide how, how, how much you want that to, choose how much you want to choose a name that is recognizable and, and can be used to identify you. Um, so you wouldn't have a human ID and it goes sort of back to the idea and why are we sending different IDs to every single platform you're logging into? And why we also don't like, we don't, we would never block someone on human ID level. We believe that, the real world works in a way where we have different identi- identities in different contexts. We are not the same people with our family, with our employee in public, employer yeah. uh, in public, and so on. And that's really, really important. That's one of the things that goes wrong on the internet. That like nobody feels like they can be themselves in a certain context. Um, so we don't think it should. You should be the same person in different services, uh, or like be forced to to show that you are the same. User on LinkedIn, as you are on, I know a dating site, and having one human ID, like identifier, would sort of would would drive that a little bit more. Because then, if two of our clients would leak data, then you could match those data together. One of like more than fifty percent of the data Facebook has is not generated on WhatsApp, Instagram, or Facebook, but it's data that Facebook buys from external data providers and then matches to your account based on PII. If two of our clients leak their data accidentally somehow, that data cannot be matched together in any way for the same user. That makes it a lot less dangerous and harmful. hmm
2: And Bastian brings up like an ethical dialogue. It, Access Now has this going on? Why ID? Should we really have one you know, ID which is connected through all of your platforms? Being in Azerbaijan it makes me uncomfortable. There's a lot of concerns and questions about what's the role of government surveillance in all of this? Especially in countries where the lines are a lot more blurry. Mm.
3: Contrast it for me for a second. People have a pretty good understanding of, they've never heard of OAuth, but they know what login with Facebook, login with Google, and login with LinkedIn is. And it's a kind of ease that they have that um, they may be uncomfortable with it, but it's easy. You know, because the alternative is, I give you my email, well, now you've got that, and and I have to remember this and, and all that. So I'm wondering, is there... What, what are the differences on the user side from that particular familiar example, the OAuth ceremony, you might say?
2: I'm not sure I'm going to click on this perfectly, but it's the beauty of going passwordless.
3: When you, okay. do you guys use WhatsApp?
0: Very What's little, but very bit. Very little,
3: I have an account, but I, yeah. So Less so now WhatsApp.
0: that some things happened yeah
3: (laughs) Yeah. i got one a long time ago before they before they got used yeah
0: i used to use it a lot more actually funny story i used it so as you both know i'm sure it's it's very very popular in non-us circles right so so my primary use case was well the one where i actually used it the most was uh with i played i played roller derby with team romania it's a thing i've never even been to romania but i was in the Played in the World Cup for Team Romania. And, and that was our main method of communication.
2: It's how I communicate with my family. Yeah, I know, family. everybody,
0: yeah, everybody, you know, I, anybody I communicate with overseas, it's also probably WhatsApp, which I think is very interesting and, and which is why it's a shame. Um, well, we can talk about that in another episode, but the yeah. whole story with WhatsApp yeah. is a bit of a shame
2: yeah and even i will stop quick but like the whole story of how it was founded and how far they've gone from like the initial ethos but yeah so going back to human id you log in once and you only log in again if you delete the app or you change phone numbers mm. in a similar manner you log in once with human id and hopefully you don't have to log in again for a while you know, we're non-profit. We don't want you walking in every day. It's not money-driven. Mm. So it's quite convenient.
1: I think another fact, like you you sort of um, put the Facebook login experience versus the SMS experience. But if you look across the world, actually, companies are moving away from Facebook and other social logins towards SMS. I, I built a company in Asia. In Asia, everything, because it's all mobile first, everyone uses SMS login. Mm-hmm. And if you look at a lot of U.S. services, they have also moved, like, for example, the three biggest dating apps in America have all started with Facebook because they got a lot of data. Um, then Facebook actually decreased to a certain extent the data they sent to services and users really asked, like they didn't want to log in with Facebook. So now you actually have SMS as the number one login for these. And then they have Facebook only for legacy reasons. It's like a secondary login option. Um, So you've already seen that movement. Human ID's experience is basically as convenient. Like it's the same experience as an SMS login, just with additional added privacy to address that concern that people are sometimes like have uh, reservations to share their phone number. So I would very much say that we're not any less convenient than Facebook and that we're more convenient than an email and password login that requires you to reset your password every other week if you're like me and you're forgetting it all the time.
3: I'm going to ask a self-serving question. Um, are, are you guys familiar with the Internet Identity Workshop, IAW? Yes, US? we had a
1: representative there this year. Yeah, I couldn't I've, make it myself, unfortunately.
3: Yeah, well, I, I, now it's uh, it's virtual. It's online for the next one. So, um, But I, I bring it up because I, I co-founded it. We've had 30-some number of them so far. We do two a year. I think you guys would be really great to have there. I think you guys would enjoy it. It's, it's not a... Um, it's not a, uh, um, a conference of the usual kind. It's all breakouts. There's no keynotes or panels. But I think what you're doing is a really original approach. Uh, and I think, you know, um, and a nice thing about being a nonprofit, too, is you're kind of like uh, typo blood. It kind of works with everything or could work with a lot of other approaches. So I think, I mean, I think you've got something that's novel enough that it, it does. It doesn't. People can't dismiss it as like, well, it's just too much like that other thing. It's it's, it's pretty. It's quite original.
1: Thank you. We appreciate that, and we, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely on our list to to be there again.
3: Yeah. What have we missed, or what what takeaway would you like uh, listeners, because it's a podcast, to uh, uh, to do next, to go, you know, what should they be, just visit the website, or go farther than that, go to go to GitHub. We've got a fairly technical audience so probably they're all going to check github anyway
1: yeah i mean for any developer that uh, really wants to make it, like a true impact in the privacy of fake news space and wants to work with with really young and motivated people um like we would definitely appreciate anyone to reach out um and reach out either uh, to me at bastion at human or through our website also pass that too
2: you know if you believe in this mission and you're going to help us out in any way advice or you know connecting us with someone we would be extremely grateful we're we're working for the same mission you know
3: it is interesting that you know that privacy is finally a big deal i mean it's a big deal three years after the gdpr comes out you know i had very uh not not so much high hopes but high expectations for the gdpr when it came out and um and it was significant for me because it's on our wedding anniversary so it was in 2018 it's been more than three years and it's kind of like oh now finally they're getting around to enforcing it here and there in some ways that are finally have people scared the u.s is uh being in the u.s we're crazy here i mean it's a crazy place it's not normal uh, for the rest of the world so it's kind of hard to to generalize, but but it seems to me privacy is just a, is a huge thing now, but it's going to get a lot bigger. Um, has Apple, I think here's a question for you. Has Apple's suddenly getting serious about privacy made a difference? Have they driven people in your direction at all?
1: Service say, which I would agree with, that users, most people still don't trust them and don't believe that mm. it's, and, and sort of see it as the privacy the, uh, the marketing gag it is. Um, I just can point at what they do in China and how they they can't, they work with the government um, to ban apps that in any way let people be private and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I we don't see it as a factor to answer your question either in, in no direction, but surveys say that sort of, they reach us with that message and in the sort of like tech space, um, but, like the normal population actually doesn't doesn't see them necessarily a lot uh, more trustworthy than a Facebook or a Google if you look at service. Mm.
2: And we can go on this for a while, but the SSO they released, sure, it tracks less data, but it's in my opinion, self- serving It's allows them to put their login on everything
0: right.
3: yeah
2: so and th- they don't protect your data. There's been scandals where. Contractors have heard very, very personal information from Siri and things like this. So, you know, as most for profits, I'd say it's very self-serving.
3: Mm. I enough. was thinking more like just of uh, raising consciousness about privacy, even if it doesn't help them. If nobody trusts them, but still, it might even give them more reason to go in your direction rather than uh, right. trust the, fact the Apple. That
0: that they're asking the question or pointing out the issue in the first place might be beneficial.
1: That's true. Um, That's true.
0: Huh? Well, that's, it's very interesting. Well, um, thank you both so much for, for joining us. I have, you know, I have a lot of respect for the fact that you're diving in and tackling such a difficult, uh, problem. And, um, you know whether whether or not your answer is the perfect one or not. Frankly, the fact that you're getting in there and doing the work is is admirable. I think. Um, and on that note, I you know I hope that we run into you at Doc's IIW <laughs> workshop someday. <laughs> well, v- Maybe someday. Virtually
3: or for real? It, it, we're not. Maybe gonna be someday there will
0: be real ones. Who yeah. knows? Ever is it? Is that ever? Or, or? No, no. It's coming. Kind of, it,
3: it'll be um, it'll be back at the Computer History Museum. Uh, oh, there you go. Uh, next someday. year. Uh, next next April. So. But this uh, this fall, it's in October, and it's going to be entirely online. Mm, so, okay, well. yeah. Out of curiosity, what's the location when it's in person? Oh, it, it's at the Computer History Museum. It's in uh, in Mountain View in uh, Silicon Valley. That's uh, that's where it's been, except for the very first one in 2005. But they've all been there. Um, and again, it's all breakouts. It's all goes into separate rooms, and people get together at the end of the day and share stuff. It all you know, proceedings go on a wiki and, you know, um, but a lot, I mean, OAuth to a large degree came out of there, OpenID came out of there, uh, a bunch of other things. Almost nothing exactly the way you expect. I mean, that's another interesting development. OAuth is not what, what we have now as OAuth is not what, we, what people wanted in the first place. They did not think they were inventing login with Facebook, but that's what they got, you know, so
0: thank you guys so much for joining us and um yeah i wish i wish you much success
3: thank you for having us it's
2: been a pleasure